Ladies and gentlemen, welcome on Soho Radio and the Art Hour. And today with us, we have the pleasure to have David Green. Uh, David, welcome to the studio. And um, a few words about David. Um, I could say very briefly, he specialized in digital art and film uh, as a curator. And uh, David, um, what is digital art? Well, art is that is digital art is um, art that's made using um, all sorts of different technologies and I guess there's not really one um, digital art form so there's various models but um, you know so there's from gaming technologies video technologies sound technologies um, internet technologies and so within them all you have I don't ever use really the word digital art I'm more, more using artist digital medium or artists who work with digital um, um, technologies so that just because it's very um, it's sort of very broad I'm not a digital or technology specialist I'm an artist who works with digital technology specialist so you are an artist no, yourself no I'm not an artist uh. no. I work with artists <laughs> who that's their interest that's what they do so my interest is in empowerment to artists and their medium right and why did you choose this specific medium and why did you think that these uh, artists uh, a group of artists may need uh, a special support? Well, there's two answers. There's two questions. Mm -hmm. um, I, I sort of got into that through, started off working on projects around near 20 years ago at the Prince Charles Cinema, focusing on artists. I was in a sort of, uh, a, a, a sort of slight change from doing one thing to another with my sort of artist promotion hat. And I sort of suddenly had a conversation with a friend, Ben, who owned the Prince Charles Cinema, still does, and said, How, what should we do together? And he said, well, we're looking for new audiences. And I said, I have an idea. And so I started with a few projects, one with a Bill Viola project for Channel, for BBC or Channel 4, can't remember, and another one with a new commission with Mark Wallinger that I commissioned. And both had a sort of big audience, um, press, uh, other people wanted me to do similar things in terms of promoting, organizing, event planning. And so over the next 15, 20 years, a lot of projects happened from there and other things from those. And I, I feel the need to support is usually when there is a need and as there isn't a huge marketplace and there are more and more and ever since then and that time artists making work uh, based with technology and at that point was really more analog um, moving to technology uh, digital platforms um, the marketplace um, is a resistant or reluctant partner and the, so ever more artists making it the marketplace still hasn't uh, come together with them to find a way to value and find an outcome uh, financially so artists struggle to find income outcomes from making artwork digital medium not all artists some exceptions do but the exceptions of the Steve McQueen's of uh, Bill Viola's they're exceptional and the average artist trying to find a way to sell what they do or find um, support is not easy it's changing but it's been a long haul 
Uh, I think there are many questions mm. there. Uh, but before we go to the market challenges for digital art, I would like to ask you, why did you choose uh, the specific track we just heard of Augusto Pablo? Oh, so... Um, Augustus Pablo, Baby I Love You, So and King Tubby Meets the Rockers Uptown was probably one of my sort of most formative pieces of music that sort of probably led me on the path of my musical listening when I was about 14, would go to a place called The Music Machine that became the Camden Palace, that became Coco, and I used to go there and would hear Don Letts, the DJ there, playing this reggae intermixed over during live, you know, in between live punk gigs. Uh, and it was around 1977. It was all kind of new to me. I'd just been growing up with Top of the Pop, so suddenly having something that you'd walk into this building, which was red plushed, lining with velvet, a bit grungy, smell of smoke and tobacco and alcohol. You could smoke indoors those days. And it was um, very exciting. The sort of reverberation of that music suddenly filled my soul and it's never quite left it. And I would say that piece of music is the one piece of music I would say is my favorite of all time. I've got other things that I love, but that one, if somebody put a gun at my head and said, what's your favorite, that's the one. Okay, Uh, so let's get to the next one Mm -hmm. and uh, back with uh, David Green.
So David Green, you were, uh, we just listened to Ralph uh, Vaughan Williams, Fantasia. Uh, why did you choose? Uh, I chose that one because, I mean, choosing classical music, um, there's a lot of pieces one could pick, but I think that's one that came to me fairly recently in my life, maybe about 10 years ago. I think when I hear it, it makes me feel like sort of pre-war pastoral England, which is a very beautiful place, even currently pastoral England, very beautiful. But I was working on a project in, that never happened when I was trying to think about picking music for a project of works that sort of made me think of what it was like to possibly have that sound of what it was like before the war. Um, and I so it somehow f- has a connection with the war for me. My father survived Auschwitz as, mm. and was a refugee to England um, and then America. Um, and so the war is quite an informative, a, f- a formative part of my life in terms of obviously formative to most people. But it was somehow where I feel like, you know, I'm very rooted in his experiences in terms of pre my life. And I guess it's always in my head and that kind of music somehow echoes something of maybe what life might have been like in a pleasant way prior to uh, bombs, death and destruction and I guess it's just a fantasy um, in my head. Let's go back to uh, the digital art and uh, you talked, uh, you briefly mentioned about the uh, challenges of the market and that digital art artists who do digital art who use digital formats um, they need to be supported and there is not a big market that can support their um, work uh, so and I was wondering which are the audiences and how you supported you referring to so you have a specific group of art collectors uh, who are interested in digital art uh, or collaborate uh, with um, uh, public institutions, rely on public funding and platforms that they started building up in order to support this category of artists? Um, I think, I mean, one of the biggest challenges is how we have an art market because there are plethoras of art galleries and they've worked out how to make money out of um, working with artists, selling their work. There's auction houses, there's differences, there's um, you know public institutions who get funded. Whereas when it becomes down to digital and hitherto, most people when they set up a digital platform are looking for the sort of goldmine of a Facebook or a Google. And so you have the sort of competition restriction of you know, the industry itself is saying, oh, we just need the one because we've, we've got such great investors and we're going to be like the dominant one. And what I'm trying to do is be just a model, not the model. And I need many, 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 many models like mine, similar, doing something similar where we can just treat it as normality. And currently it's still a little bit of a kind of, um, you know, pri- unique, quite, there's, a, there's a few others, but they're not many. And to have any marketplace, you need the many businesses to kind of be in some kind of competition uh, not necessarily in kind of who's the best but competition in terms of having uh, you know a a market that wants to come and you know come to your platform and 
choose what you're doing versus someone else or maybe they go to everyone in a shopping mall you have many shops in an art fair you have hundreds of galleries so I, I need more, I think, for the business um, to... And I think we're getting there. I mean, people are taking a bit more risk and, you know, with the work, the galleries trying to work out how to survive, it's kind of a simple-ish model to not have bricks and mortar and still support artists and find a, um, a financial system in place. Yeah, but the medium... <clears throat> Uh, as such, uh, has some, it, it's not tangible. They're digital files. So uh, I was wondering, do you have limited editions? How do you have a limited edition so, of a digital file to sell it so to, to, to an art collector? So we, on Data Editions, which is the platform I set up, and um, we commission artists, mm -hmm. And we, when we have a um, an artwork, we usually have a limited edition of around twenty artworks for sale, and um, and that's uh, it's you know it could be any number, but we kept it there to give it sort of a, a, a sort of a limited number, but not so limited that it was impossible to buy, but also that the price is fairly low to tempt um, new collectors in and to not be too scary, but. In, when you talk about the digital file, I sent you links to digital files when we were choosing music, and that's kind of, we treat that as so normal. And when it comes to the other kind of artwork, i.e. contemporary art digital files, we somehow need to treat them, I don't agree with it, we somehow need to treat them as somehow rarefied, and they can't be true that this is an artwork because no one can actually touch it or feel it. But actually, I feel the music I selected with you, for you, is as valuable as anything else I could imagine. So I don't have a value chain on how you can touch or not touch something. There's obviously artworks that are very covetous and very visceral mm -hmm. or very, um, you can see them, feel them, Uh, experience them that isn't this medium and I don't want to make this medium somehow uh, a, a, an equivalent in the sense of visual interaction with a object the uh, the artwork itself is object filled enough by the artwork that the artist makes so for me it's got enough of its own um, art world around in it without it actually I mean for me that's one of the magics of it that you have this amazing artwork without actually having to you know have something that's viscerally in your hands how can be controlled and how you re re retain the number of a limited edition in a digital file well the artwork has um, connection to a certificate of authenticity mm -hmm. which is through the email address of whoever has it connected to the website. So that reflects on who owns that work at any time. And regarding pricing, we have uh, two video works, for instance, digital works that are um, a minute each. Um, are there some criteria that can uh, create a different value to, to each of those? Each one of those. So it's about time duration. Yeah, so it, it, it's about time. So how do you value um, a, a, a video, for instance, a video work, a digital uh, video work? Well, when we set up the pricing on data editions, we try to keep a sort of equanimity amongst all works. So there wasn't a kind of sort of price based on duration 
or like when we asked the artist to when we commissioned the artist we said make these works of art and uh, usually we asked artists to make six works six short works we didn't say make six hour long works so they were generally under three minutes each mm -hmm. one artist made a four second or seven second series of works uh, four to seven seconds and that was what the artist felt was the artwork they wanted to make so I don't believe that duration has to be padded out to kind of make an artwork have its value and we paid artists and still do a sort of equanimitable rate across artists and also a similar royalty across. And so when, when, when they sell the work, when we sell the work, there's a royalty the artist gets at the end of the year. And therefore, that is again the same across artists. We didn't want an, an, a platform that was led by the famous artists who got paid more money and the work sold for much more. We have found that prices have, people have, you know, we've sold more works at a higher price and some of the works that have some of the works have gone up in price as they sell out and new works are starting to be longer and we are selling them at a higher price so it's just really sort of in a way supply and demand an audience almost treating it with more reverence the more they pay in some cases however everything we have on the platform is visible to anyone um, um, with, with the watermark but you anyone can view it so there's not there's not a there's not we're not sort of blocking somebody who hasn't afforded to buy the work from mm. viewing it if they want to own it then it's a so the freedom of dissemination of information it's still there yeah I mean but it's about uh, ownership well no there's two the levels want both yeah. you know I want yeah. anyone to feel free to look but if mm -hmm. people want to own and collect we're setting up a subscription model this year so a lower cost to have sort of the artworks chosen as you may wish uh, on a monthly basis um, but it's, um, you know, one, we set up a model. Like I said at the beginning, it is not necessarily um, the only type of way of doing something, but mm -hmm. we came up with this idea. Okay, let's go to Arvo Pat and uh, back with uh, David Green.
David Green, why Arvo Pett? Um, I was at art school at St. Martin's from 1983 to 1986. And again, my favorite music probably at the time was a mixture of classical and reggae and a few other things thrown in. And I'd play that kind of music. And But one day... I have to make a parenthesis here. Apologies for disrupting you. You are the only guest we had here who chose music from two genres alone, classical music and reggae. <laughs> okay, I'm a freak. So I... Um, no, it's not about being a freak. It's quite interesting that, mm. you, that your commitment, in a way, your mm. engagement with um, your love, perhaps. Yeah, they are, they've stayed with me since I was a sort of child and teenhood. And I think that's very telling of formative... Um, experience with music, how it sort of lingers within you from an early age, and I, that's I would share that with, you know, my, I know my kids have a love of music, and it's probably lis listening to things we played. Um, there was a um, a fellow artist at art school called Rosalie, who one day I heard this music coming from her studio, and um, it was sublime sound coming out of a studio, and the album had just been released on ECM of Tabula Rasa. And there was a someone who I didn't, I wasn't that close to Rosa, but we, I suddenly had this magic moment where you just hear this magic coming out of a room. And that was sort of, I wanted to capture that magic and it was quite easy. You just buy the LP, then subsequently the CD and then online. So Arvo Peart's music probably has never gone very far from my love passions of music and sticks in there. There's a sort of With the other music, there's a, with the other classical, there's often a sweeping lyricism or the instruments sort of linger on. They have a depth. Um, there's also, my father was, was also a rabbi and mm. the synagogue he was rabbi at, the West London Synagogue, had the same organist and still is there, a guy called Christopher Bowers Broadbent. And he always used to play Arvo Pert music in the synagogue when I was young and teen and into even now. And he'd sometimes play Parry and Tavallo, which is on another album of Arvo Pert, and he played it with Arvo Pert, so he's his sort of organ man that Arvo Pert turns to to play the premieres and recordings. And I just knew I was probably the only person in the room who was loving this music, and it was filling me with probably a love of me going back and back to synagogue was music as a kid and a teenager and an adult, and that's what probably drives me entering into buildings and even probably then I could move on to another area that music has a big effect it often drives me to listen more to works of art so where music has great soundtrack it's probably the thing that I engage with the most it's not to say other works are silent or don't have great sound are not good works of art but for me as my own love it's where the sound of a um a work I could even not be looking at it while I'm playing it and I know it's good because the sound just tells me so much. I mean there's one work that I didn't select but it um, it's from Shirin Neshant's mm. Turbulence mm. and um, I love it. it was, I first discovered it at the Serpentine there was a big show of um, her work there of, of this piece and there's huge screens of a male and a female protagonists and the voice of the Iranian music just filled me again with a sort of passion and never has left me and that's what probably happens to me of the music I think is great it stays in me somewhere and you know if you can find it again to play it it was quite easy because they made a recording but you know I am friendly with Shirin and her partner and I, I try 
try to grill them once as to who it was. They gave me a name and then I've forgotten it. So it will one day come back to me and hopefully I can discover that music over and over again in other that, that person's music. Let's go back to your other big love, uh, digital art and the visual spectrum um, or the combination of, because it's usually a combination, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Of visual and sound. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you, we, we briefly talked about data editions, which uh, you established in 2015. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which other initiatives uh, you have taken around digital art and to support um, uh, digital media? Well, um, artists with digital so working over a long time with artists, uh, cinema. I mean, I have to kind of cr- uh, correct you. My passion is actually not the uh, digital media it's actually the artist and how one mm-hmm. works with an artist and I'm not suggesting all artists are my passion my main artist passion is my wife Jane Bustin because she's my favorite artist but all other artists I guess need some kind of um, they, they don't all need it um, many artists need some kind of um, support like a gallery an institution and I see what I do as being akin to one of those that's a sort of another model by which artists can get some kind of support not just financial but also uh, with I- intention and outcomes from it so I always try and create outcomes and exhibitions elsewhere so when even with data we've had exhibitions worldwide in Beijing in uh, Shanghai in uh, Rio in Cologne in all parts of America um, Finland um, and I can say many many other places so for me it's also about being not stuck to one place uh, being able to be global obviously the art fair model means that people can travel the world and see a different art fair in every city almost every few weeks my intention was not to just pander to the art fair model but it is a time where people are prepared to look and connect with art so I like things outside of those times but those are the times usually most people want to do projects because they want something to touch the you know the cool the they see it as cool I'm not saying it's all cool um and they want to touch on something that maybe they don't know how to deliver I mean about 10 years ago Art Basel came to me and said could I help them because galleries aren't bringing art uh digital media to art fairs or analog even in the main so uh I was excited the biggest art fair in the world approached me to have some help which is kind of um slightly uh, sounds paradoxical but they were aware that galleries just weren't bringing it into the realms of the art fair they were in and there are obviously market forces reasons for that so i work very hard to make projects and programming throughout the year for that period of art basel in miami beach and had the scale of the seven thousand square foot Greening wall of the New World Symphony with 160 speakers in a surround sound system in Soundscape Park, which is part of the sort of Frank Gehry Park model that was built with the building, which is virtually next to the art fair. Mm. And it's just was I was sort of jealous of myself having this facility because there aren't many places that have that kind of facility. Absolutely not. And you know, for the next eight years was programming there so had this sort of treat but I would try and encourage galleries to submit films into the programming and that takes a kind of 
it's another head it's not to do it's da- da- my data editions was born of me realizing more needs to be done with the market with galleries with collectors with institutions it's not like um 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 i'm not um you know on a mission to convert anyone to everything but there is a need to show work that is made by artists who are currently making great work in those mediums that just don't get brought to art fairs and just everyone's a little bit scared i mean one of the reasons they're scared of the the cost return you know you pay to be at an art fair as a gallery and the return is very limited if you're showing digital media because the audiences aren't lapping it up in the same way as the rarefied single object painting um and that there are you know, certain galleries will take some risk, but ultimately, if you're, the costs are going higher and higher to be in a booth at an art fair, you want to make a return. And the risk galleries may take on that is, you know, in my view, less and less each year as the income may be coming down when a market isn't so strong or, um, uh, and then, you know, the cost of a space is higher. So, the, the, you know, it's quite a... An art fair shouldn't be seen as the best art that's in town because it's, it's very much about the best art that will sell, which is very different to the best art that is being made because not all great art sells easily. And that's, mm. you know, evident by sort of all sorts of artists that I'm, I've worked with in the past who do now have maybe bigger galleries, but some one artist like Richard Wilson who did the oil tanks at Saatchi. One of our past guests. Yes. Yeah, well, he's great and he makes work that's almost in its own design doesn't sell easily because it's so huge and so Mm. amazing um i mean and some artists find it easier than others and that's what i think you need many platforms entities to help artists have distribution outlets um let's go to eleni karaindru by the sea and back with uh, david green
Did you choose Eleni Karaindru because I'm Greek? <laughs> um, I only thought about it after I picked it. Okay. But I was, if I was asked to pick a certain music that I wanted to pick, and she, this, you know, a lot of music that I've heard from films she's made touches me in some way. It's got, again, a lyricism. I feel like I can picture a dance to it. Even, you know, I've got a son who's a trained dancer, and my wife loves dance, and I do too. Um, I don't dance, but I still love it. And I, um, there's a sort of, just it does something to me. There's a sort of, maybe there's a folky-ness uh, to it, which comes, you know, maybe from a more Eastern European sensibilities, even though it's Greek. Um, there's something about sort of pauses, um, and it's really simple, and it sort of repeats in my head. And on hearing it, it doesn't go away. It was on the ECM music label, um, and then there's a, there's a record label that often you make discoveries of just brilliant music. Um, and that was where Arvo Part, I discovered, you know, his music and more of it. And I could probably name other names on that music label alone. It just, I guess I, when I was an artist, I was an artist once, I made minimal work when I before I stopped being an artist and mm -hmm. I guess there was an interest paintings, in paintings culture yeah paintings there was a sort of interest in the sublime very minimal um and I guess that's a you know a, a challenge to many artists I'm not saying all you know the idea of the sublime is quite a, a powerful a desire to kind of capture that and I guess there's certain things you get in music which to me immediately get you know cut through the chase they've got there for me and I only wish I was a musician fortunately I have two sons who one does musical theatre and dance and the other one is a jazz musician mm. Isaac and Jacob so I'm kind of excited where they're going and they make things happen that are magic Do you do any art uh, by no, using uh, digital media? Not myself no, no, no I stopped making I never did yeah. I made paintings and I stopped. You still do? No, I mm. stopped about. I stopped when I met my wife who was much more committed and um, focused on being alone in the studio. Being alone in the studio is really tough. You have to make this thing that maybe no one wants to look at, no one wants to buy, no one cares about. There is no outcome necessarily. Mm -hmm. And so it is just tough. And I got to that point where I'd met Jane and I was more interested in the sort of not the social aspect of being, but I am more social and have a sort of marketing head in terms of promoting what I and other people do and always had done, even as an art student and as an artist, and put on shows of myself and other artists. And then that's what sometimes excites me is to get people to look at works. Even when I was an artist, looking at work was, you know, the challenge. I was more interested in getting audience to see it than I was when they might buy it. That was a sort of buy product but it wasn't my motive and I don't believe it's most artists motive is the sale of work it's usually about making something they believe passionately about when it's just about the sale one usually reads through and there probably is a limited you know uh, you know time span that work or that artist may have I mean mm. I think there's something about integrity that and a truth that people see quite quickly through and if they haven't seen it quickly through it might take them a bit more time but if it's just about money it's probably the wrong industry or business to be in I would I would say it's neither of those but I would say it's better to probably go into banking if people are yeah. keen to make money yeah uh, okay let's go to the next one Mungus Hi-Fi Mungo's Hi-Fi. Mungo's. Mungo's. Mungo's, but it's with you. <laughs> okay, it's whatever you okay. want to say. <laughs> 
A smoke went up from his nostrils And a fire from his mouth devoured Fire was kindled from his mouth
Mango for me, mango for you. Yeah. No, maybe you say <laughs> mango. mango for me. I say, anyway, I say mango. You say mungo. Anyway, I don't know mango's hi-fi that well. It's just some of the music I listen to sometimes when I'm driving. Um, you pick it from Apple. Um, I, I, I so from mango to Apple. <laughs> from mangoes to Apple. I love them both. Mangoes probably a bit more, but apples are a staple. And. Um, <clears throat> Um, well, in that track, he's uh, collaborated with Brother Culture, who's also mm-hmm. very close to very close friend of mine, um, Nick Raphael, who does a Manassas sound system, who's mm. also my son's godfather. So there's a sort of connection, but I sometimes get music in my head. It's a kind of I'd say I have a sort of a kind of you know I get caught in a you know with certain music that just doesn't go away for periods and after a while maybe I'll move on to something else but that's my current track of this time of playing it when I'm in the car there's the depth of bass when you play it and uh, you know it's a production that's good and sort of sort of I'll sort of have fights with my son Jacob who wants to play some great jazz things and I want to play that and sometimes he lets me play that kind of thing and sometimes he doesn't because he's the sort of the boss of the car sound system but it's um it's sort of a tune that's in my head currently so before the mango mungo uh we we briefly mentioned about your new collaboration with philips mm-hmm. uh, would you like to talk more about it so um data and philips auction house in starting in new york um, have collaborated to co-commission some artists works um so it's basically the data the phillips and data artist commissioning um project and we're launching this week in new york where i'm headed um, today tomorrow um to uh launches on the 25th with the opening on the 26th until the 30th of april in their park avenue um exhibition space so in the windows in exhibition space and in the box which is around the corner there's a curated program from data editions called dream catcher by the artist we've commissioned to launch with called jeremy coulard who's an artist already on the data editions platform who's brilliant and he's probably what i was trying to talk about where you connect with certain artists and you're supporting the artist you're working with the artists and by mutual collaboration you have a trust and you do sort of try aim to do the best for each other in the projects you set out to do he's a deliverer he makes great interesting work that just is challenges how i think and you know maybe how other people may react um and we're launching that as a kind of and then the second artist we've commissioned is um an artist rachel rossin and that's happening in june back at park avenue uh, uh phillips park avenue and also then it's the freeze art fair week the week after so got a screen in their talks room there showing data editions work um a, a, um, a play- um there's about a playlist called uh, little hellgate of around about 10 artists and it's um just a, you know a project because freeze is great to connect with people talk about f- freeze in everyone's repertoire so it's good to have the artist as part of a program there and data to be part of that too and it sort of follows on from uh, the, the the same weeks as the phillips project but phillips is the idea um 
of how we can sort of maybe talk to the auction house's audience to think about this with serious um, value, this medium, because I don't have an auction house audience. And now through this process of collaboration, you know, there's a dialogue with them, their sales people, their marketing, their events teams, they're all teaming up with me to make events happen and communication around it. And they're putting a lot of their effort they've put a the commissioning budget together to work together and it's you know it, it's speaking outside of a realm I can reach so it's talking to far more people that would normally then listen to me and that's an, a great moment of exposure for that medium for this medium for the artists and it's not necessarily um, um, an entity I would have thought of ever sidling up to but actually you realize they have an audience of people who actually buy art regardless of what the values are and what i i don't know i mean mm -hmm. i don't i don't measure what auction houses do or don't but likewise you know galleries have an audience but there's a very large uh, community of people who trust what they um put out there into the marketplace and that's again they're supporting data and doing that they don't have digital art plat auction uh, not, not, they've yet. done a few things paddles on was yeah. uh, an entity uh, a project between paddles eight and Pad phillips yeah. and the woman i'm working with megan newcomb at phillips and we collaborate and we really trust each other but she worked on that auction and that had an interesting impact for the auction house and paddles eight and they're doing something with artsy so there, there's a sort of goal and actually digital sales at auction houses are starting to increase mm. and already bring in huge amounts of revenue for them so it's not like uh, it's not like a strange thing for them it's it's just more about how I'm trying to work with them to support the artist and to feel you know how we start from the ground up by supporting artists is my mission and if you're putting money there to make an artwork happen that to me is a perfect start point they're not beneficiaries of any of the sales revenue it's between data and the artist but they are obviously beneficiaries of the kudos and the association and maybe the next round you know seeing what happens there might be more integral in integral kind of process of how do they reap dividends from it with the artist and us so that there's a sort of motive towards aiming at getting greater sales who will see how things and go greater production and have Maybe. the artist motivated psychologically yeah, as well exactly. i mean this, this support it's great david unfortunately we're running out of time um everything flew really fast and before we close i would like to ask you what is next for uh, david green data editions and artists doing digital art so we have obviously this now the Philips um, um, project with uh, Jeremy Coulard. We then have um, we're at Freeze Art Fair in the talks room there, showing work. We then have a project with MoCAD in Detroit where we're commissioning six artists from Detroit. Um, we're also doing a project with um, some artists in the Netherlands with this group of collectors there. And we're setting up some projects in Helsinki with various entities. We've got a sort of um, a, a project with Alto University and also Helsinki Contemporary. And there are uh, there's also another project um, that uh, uh, a project called End to End in North Carolina uh, um, coming soon. And um, so many other projects that my brain's sort of exploding but it's exciting and ultimately data is going to be setting up a sort of by about september october a subscription channel and 
and it's all uh, being developed right now by um, the team that works with us called Studio Scar Sasha and who also do this, the website for Sounds of the Universe uh, which is where I love a lot of the music I love um, comes from uh, you know you can buy it from their shop or online and that was one of the motives also for Dar's Traditions was to, uh, sort of an equivalent to how you might buy music online is how you may buy contemporary art online in a very similar way and with a similar sort of spirit. David Green, thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, have a lovely day. Thank you.